Thanks so much. It's just a pleasure for me to be here with you this morning. You know, I was originally going to be speaking on, on Psalm 2, but something's happened to just kind of change my focus. I'm going to be preaching on a different Psalm today, and I talked to Pastor Lucas, and he graciously allowed me to change that because I don't know how much advanced preparation will be done based on what I told him. You know, we're living in a time when foundations are crumbling all around us. Uh, personally, for example, uh, right after I kind of retired, finished my last uh, weekend at Rexdale, I went to Vancouver Island to do a wedding. And on the Sunday afternoon, coming back home, I picked up the phone, talked to my uh, wife, and she just gave me the terrible news that my brother-in-law had just died suddenly without warning. And as we've been continuing to be involved in our sister-in-law's life these days, uh, my sister-in-law's life, we see personal foundations crumble with no notice at all. You look at what happened in Nice, France, not too long ago. Then yesterday or two, two days before in Munich. Then in Turkey. And my mind went back to a comment that I heard on one of the many interviews shortly after 9-11 happened in 2001 about how do we protect ourselves from things like this. And I remember somebody, I don't know who it was, said, ultimately you cannot protect yourself from an enemy who's willing to die. That was just driven home to me even more powerfully as the enemy has shifted from so-called hard targets like airports and airplanes, which are now well protected and very, pretty safe. We fly all the time. 9-11 will probably not happen again. But soft targets, like a boardwalk in Nice, how do you protect yourself from that? The answer is you cannot. The foundations of life as we know it are basically crumbling and falling apart. Add to that the political correctness juggernaut both south of the border and here that is relentlessly savaging every single Judeo-Christian value that we've ever known and treasured in our society. The sanctity of life, sex, and marriage are relentlessly and ruthlessly attacked. And thinking specifically of the country of Turkey, some of my dearest friends, a couple who've been working in that country for 25 years, you know them, they are international workers from this church. I don't name them only because I never named the name of an international worker in the country they work in at the same time in, in a public arena like this. Their foundations that they've known of life are crumbling as well. And especially the fledgling Turkish church. So here's the question. When the foundations of life are being destroyed both at the personal level, at a national level, and at a global level, what can the righteous do? And by righteous, I'm referring not to the fact that we are better than anybody, but simply it's a code word in the scriptures for God's people. That's where Psalm 11 comes in. We'll just read that Psalm. If you have, it, if you have your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 11, or track with me on the overhead as we read the Psalm together. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's the question. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. Now, there was a circumstance in the life of David, we're not sure, um, 
people attribute certain times in the life of David to as many of the Psalms that he wrote. But there was obviously a time in his life when his foundations were crumbling. Gone were those beautiful meditative days and evenings when David's life was nothing more complicated than looking after sheep. And he sang his songs. He gloried in God's glory revealed in nature. And he wrote those psalms. He set them to music. He loved the law of the Lord. It was a life of peace, quiet, pastoral, meditative, worshipful. And then things began to change as he was hired to be a court musician to calm the restless, even evil spirits that would torment Saul, Israel's first king. And then the foundations of life really began to crumble. After David's victory over Goliath, Saul's jealousy ruthlessly began to pursue this man. Several had failed attempts at his death. And then David was literally on the run in the wilderness of En Gedi before he finally became king. The foundations of his life were crumbling not only personally, but Israel's king that he venerated was proving to be anything but the Saul who began with such great promise. So nationally, the foundations were crumbling as well. And he begins by saying, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? There was a temptation to run away. Now the metaphor of fleeing like a bird to a mountain may, may be nothing more than just running away and hiding. But mountains and high hills, high places had other significance in those times. It was the place where the idols were worshipped. And so probably fleeing to the mountains probably represented some alternative to continuing to trust in God when the foundations are crumbling. Whatever those personal idols may have been. Now, who was saying this to David? How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to a mountain? Was there someone external to him? Probably not. I, I suspect it was David's own soul saying, if the foundations of life are crumbling like this, what's the point continuing to hang on to my faith? Just turn your back, run away from that. Forget all this God business and righteous business. Just You got to each man for himself. That's the kind of dog-eat-dog -dog that we are living in right now. I suspect it was his internal wrestlings and wranglings. So life was in danger, the foundations were crumbling, and trusting in something other than God was a real, attractive alternative. So the situation is exactly like ours in these times, when we face the same temptation, both internally and externally. And there are three answers to this question. If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Written 3,000 years ago, just as relevant today as at any time. Because there may be some of you here whose personal foundations have gone. Maybe you've experienced a sudden death in your family and you're still grieving. Maybe a loss of a job. And you've lost your house. You've lost your self-confidence. Maybe there are relationships that are broken, fallen apart. In addition to all this national and global stuff that we find ourselves in. So there probably isn't one person in this room for whom this message doesn't speak in some way or another. All of it will not connect with all of us, but everything, all of it will connect with somebody here in this room. The first thing he says is, the Lord's throne is in heaven. The first thing that the righteous can do is to keep on believing in God. Especially that he is sovereign and on the throne. 
You may say, well, isn't that foundational? Of course it is, but you know, so often the prevalence of evil in this world, especially senseless evil like we see around us, where, where a teenager in Munich would target kids in a McDonald's store. I mean, what can be more savage and meaningless than that? Many people use that to say they can't be any God at all. I mean, this is not a sermon on apologetics, but let me just kind of, for some of you, even if there's one person who's struggling with that, there's a bit of a logical issue with that, because you see, if there's such a thing called evil in this world, then there's such a thing called good in this world. Because evil is the opposite. There's something the opposite of evil that's called good. Well, if there's good and there's evil, who determines what is good and what is evil? It can't be purely subjective preference. Because if it's purely subjective preference, then ISIS believes that what it's doing is good. And we know that isn't so. Therefore, if good and evil have to be more than just subjective illusions and subjective preferences, there's got to be something outside of us or someone outside of us that determines what is good and what is not. And that, that's precisely what, who God is. And so the problem of evil only exists if there is a good God. So to use the existence of evil to disprove the existence of God is, is a logical contradiction. But let me just set that aside, having said that, in case there are some of you who are struggling with that or run up against it. But the first thing the righteous can do can is keep on believing in God, that God is on the throne, that he is sovereign, that he is specifically sovereign in matters of life and death. It was the, the year was 2010. Now for 25 years in our church, we have been practicing something called solemn assembly. I shouldn't say our church anymore. Rexdale Alliance Church is what I should learn to say now. I'm not there anymore. Uh, we shut down all the programs in the church and we meet every night for prayer. And during that week, the staff in the afternoon gather together and we move from one staff member's office to another and we pray for that person. We ask them, what is it that you want us to pray for? Well, Pastor Nancy Scott was a pastor of women's ministries and adult ministry, volunteer deployment in our church at that time. And on the Friday of Solemn Assembly, which was one of her turns we prayed for, she said, I want to live this year under the sovereignty of God. And then she talked about a couple of the ministries that she's in. And so we gathered around her and we prayed for her. Three days later, she was dead. Went into hospital on a Friday with a flu that wouldn't go away, and by Tuesday morning, God had taken her home. She was living, she wanted to live under the sovereignty of God that day. Around about the same time, Haiti had its massive typhoon. And our youth pastor was a Haitian. And there were people that he knew that were taken away then. Some lived, some died. Who, who determines who lives and who dies at any given time? The scriptures are very clear. It's God. In the book of Acts, for example, you remember the story of uh, Peter uh, when he was imprisoned in prison. And uh, the church prayed for him. And steel doors opened miraculously. An angel came and set him free. But it would be easy to miss the few verses that introduced that story in Acts chapter 12. James and Peter and John who were part of that inner circle. James had been beheaded by Herod. Don't you think the church prayed for James? Of course they did. How come James was beheaded and Peter was released? Why would God answer a prayer for release for one, one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, but not the other one? Because he's sovereign when it comes to these matters. Now you might say, oh, maybe they didn't have as much faith when they prayed for James. Well, actually, reality would be quite the opposite. If I prayed for somebody's salvation and safety and they got beheaded, I wouldn't likely be praying with a whole lot of faith for the next person. If, if anything, their faith for, in Peter's situation was probably less, more hesitant. 
Because you see, ultimately didn't have anything to do with faith. It's one of the things my sister-in-law is struggling with these days. You know, because her husband whom God took away believed in faith healing. Hebrews chapter 11, that famous chapter of faith, uh, drives it home in a couple of verses that are closely juxtaposed to one another when it says, by faith some escaped the edge of the sword. Wow, that's the kind of faith we like. Victorious, conquering faith. Five verses later it says, by faith others were put to death by the sword. Faith. A life of faith, you escape the edge of the sword. A life of faith, you are put to death by the sword. So it doesn't depend upon faith. It's about the sovereignty of God. When that man took that truck and mowed down those people in Nice, and he was swerving this way and that way, and people were running here and there, who determined who lived and who died? At the human level, there's all kinds of factors. Which way the terrorists turned the bus? How fast people could run? Was there an old lady who, could, who fell? We, those are the human factors. But one of the things the scripture is very clear about is God. Ultimately, God is sovereign. By the way, the most practical implication of that is you don't have to be afraid to die. In this world in which we live in, don't stop going to the malls. Don't stop flying. Don't stop doing what God wants you to do because you might die. It's not in your hands anyway. He's on the throne. You'll only die when he says when. Jim Elliot, that famous missionary, used to say, we are immortal until our work is done. You should be saying amen all over the place this morning. You don't have to live lives of fear. Of course, we're soft targets now, folks, but it doesn't matter. The terrorists don't determine when you die. God is on the throne. The first thing that righteous need to do when the foundations are crumbling is to believe that God is on the throne. He's sovereign over matters of life and death. You also need to believe that the, it says here, the Lord is righteous. Verse 7. Because in times like this, not only is there the temptation to believe there's no God and we've taken care of that problem, that's a logical impossibility, but the other one is, well, God's not righteous. God is not good. He's there, but he isn't good. I remember the same time when God took Pastor Nancy away, the country of Haiti was devastated. I remember wrestling with God. It's such a poor country anyway. Why do you pile misery upon misery? If a little island has to be devastated so badly, maybe you could do it to one of the rich islands for a change. This country is so poor, they're already suffering so much. Why so much more? And it's a real temptation to conclude that God is not righteous. But that's exactly what we are asked to not. We're asked to keep on believing that God is not only sovereign over matters of life and death, God is righteous whenever he acts in this world. Because he's holy. Remember the book of Job, those opening two chapters, which systematically talks about everything that was dear to Job that was being taken away? And even Job's wife said, curse God and die. He said, in all this, Job did not sin with his mouth or charge God with error. That's a real temptation. And so the righteous can keep on believing not only that God is sovereign, but that God is on the throne, sovereign over matters of life and death, but that he is also righteous. But more than that, he's not only sovereign, he's long-suffering. Because we might say to ourselves, 
Why, if you are on the throne, Lord, why do you let evil continue to have its way? Couldn't you have taken that guy in Nice out before? If you could call my brother-in-law home in one instant when he was sitting peacefully in his backyard reading his Bible and praying, he could have taken that truck driver from Nice away in an instant. Why didn't he do it? Is he not incensed with all this evil that's happening? Does he take pleasure in the idea that an 18-year-old mows down some kids in McDonald's in Munich? Now, come on, you're asking these questions, right? You should be. What's the answer to that? He's not only sovereign, he's also long-suffering. When we are incensed enough by evil and want that shut down, and we say, God, you are powerful and you're good and you don't do it, it's not because you and I are more holy than God. It's because he's far more long-suffering than you and I are. That's what this text says. It says, the Lord tests the righteous. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. God is not in a hurry. God's inactivity, apparent inactivity in the face of human uh, and evil is no evidence of his powerlessness or his lack of goodness, but that he is long-suffering. It's one of the attributes of God. Remember, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience. The two words for patience, uh, two Greek words translated patience in the Bible, two different words. One is hupomone, which has to do with faith, the patience in circumstances and things. The other one is macrothumia, which is patience with people. We're called to become like God in that way, to be long-suffering. That's the first thing righteous people can do when the foundations are crumbling. They can keep on believing God, specifically that God is sovereign in matters of life and death, God is righteous, so we don't charge him with evil and error. And God is long-suffering, and so we learn long-suffering with him as we live in this world of evil. The second thing that righteous people can do, it says the Lord is in his holy temple. We can keep on, I'm not sure why the overheads are not coming here. Uh, it should be on by now. Advance a couple more, please. Okay, the second one, the righteous people can keep on seeking God. as well. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now the temple in, Jesus, in um, David's time was of course the place of corporate worship. Three times a year all of Israel went on the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles corporately to worship God. The temple for them represented the intersection of heaven and earth. This is where time and eternity met together. That's why Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 12, for we have not come to Mount Zion, but we have, come, we have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in the book of life, to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the better covenant. That's where you are today. Do you know heaven is all around you at this moment? can't see it. It's invisible, but it's that far away from you. It's not someplace out there somewhere. So when you gather together for corporate worship, today, of course, it's not the temple, it's not the building. 
Although how this be the beautiful building. It's not the building that makes it the place of God. It's you and I. Living stones who are being put together. And the Lord is in that temple. He's here today. This holy God we're talking about. This long-suffering, righteous, sovereign God is here. And so we just only don't just think these thoughts about him. We actually encounter him. We don't know him just intellectually. We know him by personal experience and encounter when you come together like this. That's why it's so important that as a worshiping community, you learn how to maximize your encounter with God. Can I give you a few quick suggestions? This is a whole sermon in itself. First of all, just come. You say, really? Is that a no-brainer? Let me tell you something. We're, we're living in a society where, in, in I, whatever statistics we've done in our own church, barely, I don't know what it's like here, but I suspect it will be too different. Barely 25% of a congregation comes to church weekly. A good 50% come once in two weeks or once in three weeks, and another 25% comes once in four weeks, and they all call it regular. That's the, that's the culture we live in. No, 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 listen, when the foundations are crumbling, you need, you need to commune with God corporately in his holy temple more desperately than ever. It should be your highest priority item. You should mark it into your calendars and live the rest of your life around it. Not the other way around, folks. The Lord is in his holy temple when you gather together. He is present in corporate worship in a way that he is not privately, although we privately engage him too. So come. Come on time. That's something else that's so important. I used to be able to set my watch by the time some people walked into church. 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes afterwards. Now, why is that so important? The reason it's important to come on time is that the worship pastors and leaders have taken time to sculpt this holy time. An hour, an hour and 15 minutes. If they haven't, they should be doing it. It's sacred time. It's holy time in a holy place where God's holy people are gathered together. And, and the songs we sing, the prayers of invocation, they're not just preliminaries to the sermon. These are all ways in which we engage with God. You never know when he's going to speak to you, when he's going to show you. The first line of the first hymn that you sing may be why God wanted you in church that day. Or maybe all of that is preparation of your heart the tilling of the soil. Maybe it's the first time in a whole week you've been quiet and long enough to be able to hear anybody speak. And so all of that is appropriate preparation for the proclamation of the word of God. So come, come on time, stay alert, which means if you're up to two o'clock in the morning on Saturday, on social media and TV and whatnot, you're not going to be very alert on Sunday morning to respond to God's divine initiatives in your life. And then enter wholeheartedly the beauty of music and poetry is that they do something that mere prose cannot do. You see, we, we have both explanation and imagination that works together in tandem. The preaching primarily addresses itself to explanation, although the stories address more than that. But, but singing, drama, theater, what that does is press poetry and music into service so that it affects the imagination. And both intellect and imagination need to be engaged together. And that's what happens. And so pay attention. Sing the songs. Focus on the words. Let, let the, the unique turns of phrase that poetry and music uh, represent touch your heart.
And then, of course, listen carefully to the preaching of the Word of God. One of the most beautiful pictures of what happens in corporate worship, especially when you are being battered by the kind of issues that come to the forefront when society is crumbling, is found in another psalm. That's the other psalm I could have chosen instead of this one, Psalm 73. He begins by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's theology. But as for me, as for me, he says, my foot almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Theology and life were clashing. And do you know what? Life was beating up on theology. Theology says, surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet were almost slipping when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There his issue was not crumbling foundations. In that psalm, the issue was, how come the wicked are so prosperous and the righteous gets beaten up? When theology says it should be operant. That's why I said life was beating up on theology. And so he tried to figure things out. And he said, when I tried to understand these things, it was too oppressive for me. His intellect could only take him so far. I was becoming a wearisome burden. He couldn't figure it out. Just as we cannot figure out why the foundations are crumbling all around. Why my husband dies in an instant when I wasn't expecting it. When I was looking forward to a life of joy and, and gladness together at this stage in our lives. When I tried to figure those out, he says, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood. Tensions between life and theology that cannot be resolved in the intellect and most often are not are resolved in the act of worship. It is in the temple that in our hearts we begin to say, yes, God is sovereign over life and death so I don't have to be afraid. Yes, God is righteous, so I don't charge him with error. And yes, God is long-suffering, so I will work, live patiently in this world with him. I remember a time in India, it was 1984. And uh, I'd gone home for two months because uh, I'd been away from, uh, for many, many years. Uh, my children had never seen uh, my brother's children at that time. So I took a two-month leave of absence from the church and went home to India for the summer, July and August. And when you get immersed in a country like India, once again, the foundations of your life begin to crumble. The gospel that seems so credible here seems almost impossible to believe out there. When you live every day among 800 million people and you see the crowds all around you, most of whom have never heard the gospel, and if they hear it, they probably wouldn't be able to understand it. Because my own parents had heard the gospel from me for 31 years at that time and neither one of them had come to Christ. And then when I saw the crushing poverty all around me, slowly my faith began to take a nosedive throughout those times. And by the time we got to the end, all of my work in Rexdale, I'd been there pastor for four years now, seemed so irrelevant to the need of the world. And, and I was really, really facing a pretty massive temptation to come back here, resign from the church, see if I could get my job with Atomic Energy of Canada back again. Not because I wanted to turn my back on Jesus and run into a, a life of hedonism. I knew enough to know that that was foolish. But I just wanted to retreat from the problems of the world into a highly privatized Christianity. I'll take care of me and my family. God, you take care of the world and the poor. Don't bother me with that. I can't handle it. I was pretty close. I was pretty close. I was, the, my faith was so devastated by what I saw. So it was the final Sunday. I went to church. 
like I do every Sunday. Nothing spectacular happened. So we came back home and started packing because we were leaving the next days. So I said to my wife, Sham, I said, you want to go to church in the evening? She said, no. Nah. I said, I'm going to go. So I went. So there were about 100 people in that church in New Delhi, India. I sat, was sitting, sitting near the front row. I like the front of the church. Weird as that may seem, you know. And the man who was preaching this that day was the president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he came to the pulpit and he said something like this. He said, I want to speak to those of you who are full-time workers. You know, all the full-time workers in the church were sitting on the platform. I was the only one there. He didn't know that. So right away I began to wonder what's going on. And then he asked the question, this. He said, has the joy run out of your life? By now I was sitting bolt upright. He was going to speak to full-time workers and he asked the question, has the joy run out of your life? I think that was, I was the only guy who met those two criteria in that building that day. And then he went to the familiar story of Jesus turning the water into wine, and he said four things. He said, Jesus could have, could have taken center stage, but he let the servants take center stage. Secondly, he said, what he asked them to do was completely irrelevant to the need. The need was for wine, but he told them to fill the pots with water. Thirdly, he said, only Jesus can turn water into wine, but without water, there wouldn't be any wine. And fourthly, he said, Jesus saved the best for last. And he finished by telling story after story after story of Wycliffe Bible translators that had worked for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years without any fruit, and then a huge harvest. I was a totally transformed man by that time. Because that's what I was feeling. Jesus was asking me to occupy center stage what he was asking me to do in Rexdale seemed so irrelevant to this massive need, but it was he who could take water and turn it into wine, and he would yet save the best for last. So I said, change my plans. I came back, and I was in the church for 31 more years after that. And I would have missed all of that. What if I hadn't gone to church that night? What if I hadn't sought the Lord in his temple that night? So the righteous can keep on believing God, that he's sovereign, that he's righteous, that he's long-suffering. The righteous can keep on seeking God. And finally, oh, by the way, one more thing. Not only do you seek God in the temple, you also seek him in his word. Because in this word, he reveals himself to us. The written word is powerful because of Jesus, the living word. And this is the testimony to Jesus. And so you not only seek him in the temple and corporate worship, you seek him privately in your own readings and prayer. And God speaks to us. Remember Genesis chapter 1, the opening words of the Bible? What is it? It says, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth was shapeless and empty, without form and void, or empty. Initial creation of the cosmos, matter, space, and time, was shapeless and empty. And then what God's word did for the next six days, when he said, let there be light, let the waters gather together, let the uh, ground bring forth vegetation, he was shaping the shapeless and filling the empty. The very first chapter of the Bible presents God's powerful word doing something that every one of us needs in a time when the foundations are troubled. His spoken word shaped the shapeless and then filled the empty. And the apex of that was, of course, human beings whom he then made vice regents. In other words, giving to us the same privilege of shaping the shapeless and filling the empty through the word of God. That's what this work is all about. 
You don't read the Bible just because you're going to earn brownie points with God. This is the word of God that shapes the shapeless and fills the empty. And when our lives are devastated by either personal or corporate crumbling of foundations and they are lying in pieces, that's what we need. We need a living word from God that shapes the shapeless and fills the empty all over again. Don't we? And so when the foundations are crumbling... The righteous not only seek God in his temple, the righteous seek him in his word. That very weekend, that very weekend when Pastor Nancy went home to be with the Lord, my wife was struggling. Two questions were plaguing her. Because she was also my, my, our first three grandchildren's uh, God, godmother. And boy, did she ever take her calling as a godmother seriously. She was an amazing intercessor for my, three for the, for my first three grandchildren. And so my wife's first question was, Lord, why would you take away our, our grandchildren's godmother who prayed for them? And she also had a beautiful, amazing ministry in the church. She said, why would you take away that ministry? Well, she, and she had a long practiced habit of going to the Word. And so she went to the Word, seeking God in his temple. And I don't know the details of the particular verses that God spoke to her from, but he said two things to her. He said, don't worry, Nancy won't be there for your children, grandchildren anymore, but I'll be there. I'm still on the throne, and I'm still watching over them. And secondly, don't worry about women's ministries in the church. Wait till you see what I do in the years to come. And he did. One of the, one of the young women that Nancy mentored took over her task and just extended that ministry and took it to whole new directions. And today, there's a, there are flourishing dimensions for the women's ministries in our church that were not even on anybody's radar screen five or six years ago. And some of you remember the couple that I referred to who are working in Turkey. And if you, listen, if you get their call to prayer, you would have read this. The very day after that night when the failed military coup took place and this country was devastated and has been since, she, she wrote in this recent call to prayer, where does my daily reading take me the next day? I went to the book of Amos. You know what Amos 3, 6 says? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So who, who devastated Turkey? The failed military coup leaders? Erdogan who wants to hang on to power? Yeah, those are the instrumental causes. According to the word of God, the ultimate cause is God. Who devastates a city? He says, can disaster come to a city? Nice, Munich, Turkey, unless the Lord has done it. So she goes to the word and she is the splendor of God's sovereignty. God is still on the throne. And this is what she writes. She said, what struck me the most was the word I over and over again in the book of Amos. And so it became overwhelmingly clear to me that nothing happens without the sovereign hand of the great I am allowing it. God is in control, not the army, not the police, nor any other governing force. The Lion of Judah has roared and utters his voice. The question is, what is he saying and how then should we pray? So she saw the glory of God this time in the word of God. So very quickly, what can the righteous do when the foundations are crumbling? They can keep on believing in God, that he is sovereign, that he's righteous, that he's long-suffering. They can keep on seeking God in the temple and in his word. And finally, they can keep on being righteous because they say, for the Lord is righteous and the Lord loves righteous deeds. 
What God thinks of an action matters more than anything else. Sometimes in our lives, we have to take position and stances on certain things that are going on around us, sometimes even in our extended families, that you might find yourself all alone in that position because you believe this is what God's word teaches and you take your stand on that. There's no guarantee that anybody else is going to follow you. People close to you might get upset with you because you refuse to think in certain other lines. It's very important to know in those moments that God loves righteousness. One of the greatest motivations to continuing to live righteously when the foundations are crumbling all around us is to be gripped by the fact that what God thinks of how I think is more important than what anybody else thinks about how I think. We're not in the business of thinking in such a way that the most number of people will be happy with our thinking. We're in the business of evaluating how we think in the light of what God's word says and line up our thoughts with his thoughts. So the righteous will continue to keep on being righteous. But one specific dimension of righteousness is what I want to mention as I close. When the foundations are crumbling, what can the righteous do in the face of this kind of evil? You see, when Jesus began to speak, when he began his public ministry, Matthew's gospel says he began to teach about the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're so used to reading the Sermon on the Mount out of its initial primary context that we, we have reduced it to a bunch of ethical rules. But you have to remember, Jesus was speaking to an oppressed people. They had been under oppression first from Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and now the brutal regime of Rome. They were an oppressed people with a horrible enemy over them all the time. And it is to those people Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> I mean, there were factions within Israel that was called the zealots. They attacked Roman soldiers. They wanted to win and prevail by the sword. And Jesus says, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hungering and thirsting, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall find mercy. And then later on he goes and he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who persecute you. If a, somebody makes you walk one mile, which a Roman soldier could do to a Jew, offer to walk a second mile. Chapter 6, Father, forgive us as we forgive those that trespass against us. We're so used to thinking of it just in terms of the petty peccadillos that affect us sometimes. What they would have been hearing is, forgive the Romans. So what does that say to us about our attitude towards people who perpetrate these kinds of things? I mean, there's a very righteous sense in which we say, God, strike them down, damn them in hell. That's where they belong. They deserve the damnation of God. And I don't, I don't use that word as a curse word, by the way. I use it in the way the Bible uses it. Yeah, we, we want to see, let, let their children be murdered the way they murdered those kids in 
Munich. Yeah, that's natural. That's okay. That's where we start with those visceral, raw emotions. That kind of anger is good because when we are angry at the things that anger the heart of God, we should be angry. We spend too much time being angry at the things that offend us because our puny little rights are being affected. But we don't get angry at the things that anger the heart of God. And that's okay. But Jesus says, while you start there, you don't step, step, end there. Leave vengeance to me, he says. Leave vengeance to me. You bless those who persecute you. You pray for those who are despitefully using you. Sadly, south of the border, maybe even here, maybe secretly in our living rooms where no one else is listening to us, what are we saying about those immigrants that are flooding our country? What are we saying about radical jihadist Islamic terrorists? What is going on within our hearts? What are we longing for? According to Jesus, the righteous eventually break through to saying, Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, reveal your truth, your glory to them. Lord, I long far more than anything that they will come to know you and become followers of Jesus than just that judgment and suffering that will make me feel a little bit better. You see, precisely because God is long-suffering, we can leave vengeance to God. and We can focus on treating people the way Jesus taught. So that's the psalmist's answer to the question. When the foundations are crumbling, what can the righteous do? They can keep on believing God. They can seek on seeking God. And they can keep on being righteous. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow humbly before you this morning here. We thank you that you are here. We believe your word that the Lord is in his holy temple. And Lord, you know each heart here this morning. Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple, Lord, you know what is in each person's heart. So will you deal with each person according to what is in their heart today? You know who needs rebuke. You know who needs encouragement. You know who needs that gentle care of a loving father that we sang about. We know who needs assurance, who needs encouragement, who needs hope. We know who needs a quick prod to start moving. We know who needs to be sat down to be quiet. You know exactly what they need. I don't, we don't. But we just lift up this congregation to you. And we ask Jesus that you will minister. You will speak. Remove everything from their minds that I have said today that does not reflect your voice and your mind. But of all that I have said that reflects your mind and your heart for them, intensify that. Deepen that conviction throughout the course of this day. That large numbers of us will, will rise up and be that vast army of righteous men and women who will keep on seeking God who will keep on believing God and worshiping Him and who will keep on being righteous. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.